The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The case of Gabby Petito and Brian Laundry has left us all with many more questions than answers. Why didn't the FBI ever name Brian as a suspect in Gabby's murder? Did Brian have a gun? Why didn't Brian or his parents cooperate with law enforcement? Did Chris and Roberta know of Brian's whereabouts when he left their home never to return? Are the remains that were found in Mayakahachi Park really those of Brian Laundrie? What did he write in the notebook that was found? Does it contain a written confession? Now two families are without their kids, so that's the hard part. And I think that's maybe lost in some of the thoughts. I mean, I know he's the most likely suspect, even though he was never named. People want a resolution, and that's why there's conspiracy theories. But you just have to remember there's families for both of them. You know, it's not easy for anybody, obviously, to lose a a child to murder or otherwise. You're listening to Speaking of Crime. As we all know, the initial coroner's report on Brian, which was issued soon after his skeletal remains were discovered, was inconclusive, which prompted a slew of questions and doubts from the thousands of people following this case. More and more questions seem to arise every day, with theories ranging from Brian's parents planting evidence to the remains that were found not belonging to Brian. We spoke to Priya Banerjee, a board-certified forensic and anatomic pathologist, who you may have seen speak on multiple news outlets regarding this case. She has spoken to Brian Enton on News Nation, CNN, Fox News, and many other stations. I am a board-certified forensic pathologist. I've been in practice um, around 12 years. Primarily, like, the majority of that has been for the state of Rhode Island as a Uh, state medical examiner, forensic pathologist, they're interchangeable terms. I do uh, a lot of expert work. Now, what people don't know is that lawyers need a lot of help usually if there's um, an injury or death in an individual or individuals that go to court. So that can be for criminal or civil matters. They usually hire me to help them interpret the case. You know, how do I prepare for trial? What does this mean? In that capacity, I deal with so many different cases, stuff that wouldn't even cross my mind initially, but I have formed a strange niche, a unique niche, if you should say, that I have been involved in also living people's cases. So, you know, forensic pathologists have this unique perspective on injury interpretation. Uh, We see injuries all the time. And you have to remember that sadly, 
people sustained these injuries when they were living and, and then it's caused them to pass away. And so what happens is sometimes, luckily, when people don't pass away, but they still have sustained injuries, they need an expert to help, you know, in a court setting, interpret those. So I've done quite a bit of domestic violence, strangulation type of work for the military and just in general. So it, like I said, it's a very broad area of practice, even as a forensic pathologist and working for myself, I like different hats, if you will. You know, it's never the same thing. You know, today I'm speaking with you periodically. So I'm interviewed in the media. As you said, Brian Laundrie was the most recent case. You know, I spoke on the Derek Chauvin trial, George Floyd's death, Gabby Petito's the first half of, you know, their related cases. So when she was discovered and then Brian Laundrie. And I think over time, the reason I'm sought after is because this is like a, you know, there's the TV world of it, the TV representation, and then there's the reality. And I think when we think about these complex cases that people are exposed to, they really don't understand how we go about analyzing the body or the remains and then identifying them coming up with the cause and manner of death, you know, how did, it's just so much unknown. And obviously none of it happens in an hour like TV. We wanted to get a better understanding of how human remains are identified and specifically what method of identification is used when IDing partial remains through dental records. We asked Dr. Banerjee the question on everyone's mind. Is there any chance that the remains found are not Brian's? Dental is 100% accurate. You know, believe it or not, even when we look at our own teeth, all we're seeing is the part in, you know, visible within our mouth. Yes, there are differences when we just look at each other's mouths, but, you know, that's superficial. What we really look at within the x-rays are not only the, you know, the teeth and how they relate to each other. If you've had cavity fillings, if you had a crown, a bridge, an implant, you can see all that. But believe it or not, even if the person has no teeth, right? Like an elderly person or, or, you know, for whatever reason, someone has no teeth, you can still use x-rays of the mouth and jaw area to identify them because the bone underneath that like is in our jaws and our sinuses that make up our face, that itself has unique structures. We're seeing people with different face shapes, but when you really get into the x-rays, you can see just like fine what's called a trabecula, the like little building blocks of the bone, the spines and whatnot, and how they relate. And you can really see interperson differences. And so that's why it's like a fingerprint, if you will. You know, the fine details are really what help us identify people, 100%. It's definitely him. I just don't know how he died and we may never know based on the condition of his body. One of the things I teach my students, the number one tenet is you never autopsy the wrong person. You know, identification is primary, okay? And I, I mean, even in a normal looking individual, you want, you know, if they come from the hospital or something, you know, you want to make sure that tag is right. I mean, I go through this whole process when I teach my residents or other people, like how paranoid I am about identification. And so it's beyond me to think that they would release an ID 
without them being certain. The conspiracy that it's not him and this is a skeleton and he's still living somewhere, that just is crazy. Now, the condition of his body is gonna make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to come up with a cause of death. I'm very intrigued as to if they were able to find anything from the belongings, like a note or something. My understanding was a dry pack with like a diary or something in it. And so maybe that survived the conditions and could have been analyzed for any journaling, note, whatever. I haven't heard anything since my interviews with relation to it. Of course, I keep up more on the medical examiner side of things, but with media coverage, I haven't heard anything that they released. You know, I'm sure the FBI is working on it or has worked on it, but they haven't released any information as to that piece of the puzzle. Dr. Banerjee was able to put some of the public's questions and disbeliefs to rest by explaining the process and accuracy of identification through dental records. Any information released as to what method was used to identify him with dental records and who did that identification? I don't. I haven't seen that. I mean, they said generally it was the medical examiner's office, but I presume in such a high profile case where someone is found outside in a swampy area, they would have gotten a professional involved, meaning not just a medical examiner, but an odontologist to help with it. You know, I mean, there's so much unknown and it's a high traffic area, right? This was like a hiking park area. So it's accessible to the public. And my understanding was, in my mind, some mishandling of the scene, meaning it was closed and then reopened to the public and then closed again. You just have to account for the variability of people who could have just walked in there and had an unfortunate demise totally unrelated to this, right? So you can't just assume any body that I found is going to be Brian Laundrie. That really had to be proven with the utmost scientific match. I'm aware that it's partial remains, but I wasn't exactly sure the extent of the partial remains. Obviously, there was a some, you know, the skull was there or a good portion of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to do dental records um, with certainty. And then I don't know about the rest of the body. You know, you have to think about that there are alligators in that area. The body could be a very rich food source. So I'm, I, I have no fact that that happened, but it's just something that I worry about. And that could obviously introduce missing parts, changes to the body. So it really depends on how much of a partial body you have. Does that make sense? Like if you have 10% of the body versus 80%, I mean, that's still technically a partial body, but obviously you're gonna have so much more information available to you depending on the extent of piecemeal of body parts or artifacts or changes, whatever you have. Nothing is going to be perfect, and I think it's going to be incredibly challenging to come up with the cause of death. First of all, there's definitely parts of the body missing, I mean, because they're calling it partial. Again, I don't know the extent. Then he is skeletonized. I don't know if it's completely or with small pieces of soft tissue left, but what's happening is think about how much is missing, right? So there could be, let's say, you know, let's say he was, he shot himself, okay? Potentially, like, you could do that, and if the head is, you know, if you shoot yourself in the head, it could break apart and you don't have the rest of the skull to put together. If you shoot yourself or stab yourself in the chest, let's say, you know, it could penetrate and not leave marks on the bones to, because now the tissues are gone. You could really have like the ribs without the rib cage tissue and you won't see anything left, you know? Only if it nicks the bone would you really see it, and that's if. Now, let's say there's no penetrating trauma and he took, I don't know, 
some sort of medication, drug to overdose, alcohol, whatever it may be. He's now skeletonized and you can't do toxicology on bones. It's, we do it on blood, we do it on liver tissue, we do it on multiple tissues of the body, the spleen, you know, stuff that has blood that's been, you know, that has the drugs in it and has been metabolized. So eye fluid, blood, liver tissue, stomach contents, urine, bile, all the stuff that we gather are not there to access. So that whole toxicology aspect, which would be key in this case, is unavailable to my colleagues. So that again, makes it incredibly difficult to come to a definite conclusion. And, and I read that um, DNA can be extracted from the pulp chamber to identify. Is, and yes. is that something that often happens when you use dental records to ID people or is it more what you were just explaining? So what is done with in, in my sort of level of expertise and with the aid of forensic dentist, I mean, I have a very basic training in it. And if there's any more complexity, I get a colleague involved, like a forensic odontologist, which is a forensic dentist. But nonetheless, that's just by looking at them, meaning their morphology, the relationship, the shapes, you know, and the number of teeth, etc. DNA from the tooth can be done, but is usually done much later down the line. It's so again, teeth are resilient, right? Because you have enamel, but that also makes it difficult to drill into them, right? Think about when your dentist has to drill into a tooth. It's not, you know, one, two, three, and it's a delicate process. So my understanding, so I've never been involved in using a tooth for DNA. If I were to have a skeleton that needed DNA being done, we usually give a section of like a long bone. So your thigh bone, which is the femur, or your arm bone, which is the humerus. And these are long bones, which means they have bone marrow and other cells in there that would have DNA. So we usually send quite a large piece of bone to the lab. So I've never had to resort to the tooth because I have a better sample to work with, which is this long bone piece. Now, you know, in my training, what I've learned from my military colleagues is that God forbid, you know, there's a horrible death at war and they find a tooth. They have a very hard job because they have to try to reassimilate pieces of the deceased to make them whole for proper burial. And so let's say worst case scenario, they find an isolated tooth from a, a deceased uh, soldier, they will do DNA on that tooth to try to figure out whose it is. They try to repatriate, re like reassemble the soldiers, like all the parts that's possibly identified. Or let's say in 9-11, the towers, when that fell and you have a mix of individuals, if you found a fragment like that, every fragment had DNA done on it to re, you know, reassemble the, with the person. So again, it's can be done in certain instances, but it's not the primary go-to for identification. So clearly, the identification through dental is much more scientific than a simple bite mark comparison. Not so much bite marks, but this is just, we're talking about skulls and teeth remnants. So when someone's not identifiable just by looking at them because they've been decomposed, or sometimes it's the injury so severe that their face is not as intact that you would, you know, that they would appear like their normal selves. That's when we really use this as a tool. 
We wondered how Brian's remains could have decomposed so quickly, leaving only some bones. It's a very swampy area. It was covered very deep in water. So my understanding is the police had initially put drones out. They had tried to really search that area, but the limitations were the environmental ones, you know. So because it was very deeply covered in water, even if you're searching with like cadaver dogs and stuff, like it's not going to be as sensitive when there's so much uh, water and depth involved. It's curious to me that his parents found his belongings or artifacts like after the water receded, but they said that they were familiar with that area or he was, and that's what led them there. Because it's been, it was such a duration, right? It's been weeks that he had been out there and no one knows the exact time of death. You know, I haven't been informed of any conclusions made from like the diary or the backpack that they found. So I know those were found, but I don't know if analysis has been done to reveal anything like a note or any other data. So we don't know an exact time of death or modality, you know, how he took his life if if it was a suicide. But um, we know that that's a swamp area with alligators, snakes, bugs, you know, other animals. So unfortunately, after someone dies in that area, like Brian Laundry, that's a food source for all these creatures. So that's what's going to promote his body breaking down so quickly and being bones as they found him. And why weren't they able to use DNA to initially ID the skeletal remains? DNA is more costly and time consuming. And when you have a skull and with teeth, teeth are very resilient to decomposition, to destruction. Any of us that go to the dentist, even my young daughter has x-rays, right? And so those, you know, we know who those belong to. So that's just like having a fingerprint. So it's a dental fingerprint, if you will. And then when we have a possible remains, like we have an idea of who it is, we can ask for those dental x-rays to compare to the body that we have. And that's what they did to make the identification of Brian Laundry. I'm not sure that they needed to even pursue DNA. That's where I'm not privy to the information and I don't know exactly what was done, if anything. After the initial autopsy came back inconclusive for cause of death, and a DNA match could not be made, the remains were sent to an anthropologist for further evaluation. So what additional information can an anthropologist determine from the remains? You have to clean up the bones. You know, obviously coming out of the swampy environment, it's not gonna be clean. You know, you want to be able to see the bones. So there's enzymatic soaps that we apply to the bone in a very gentle way with water and and sort of agitate them or we'll scrub them with a brush, like a toothbrush. So we're not carving the bone, we're just cleaning it, rinsing it. And then they will look at them under like either a dissecting microscope, magnifying glass, we'll definitely x-ray everything because x-ray gives us not only the outside, but the inside, if there's fractures, you know, assessing that kind of element. But every bone that is present is going to be looked at very detailed. And that's where you look for normal features, you know, variations, but you also, more importantly, look for trauma. Let's say someone was stabbed, you can sometimes see a nick in the rib, meaning that the actual sharp instrument left a groove. And that's not always, but again, these are the kinds of small changes, they're very small, that you're looking for, you know, fractures, anything you can see, you know, broken ribs from trauma, anything like that. Now. 
you know, what is present to analyze this. I'm making very general statements because I don't know what's there. We work as a team. You know, when I've had skeletonized remains, I do like a full initial assessment, meaning I put the skeleton together, I do the x-rays. If it's fully skeletonized or if it's partially skeletonized with a body, I, you know, I do x-ray uh, autopsy on whatever is left, meaning if there's residual fragments or portions of organs, I look at those. And then, you know, I take anything for toxicology if there's soft tissues available. I'll do the sort of normal autopsy protocol, if you will. And then I would work with the anthropologist to, again, clean the bones, isolate the bones, probably re-X-ray them once the tissues have been removed and then look at it with them, you know, specifically. But maybe if the anthropologist is far away in this case, I mean, my understanding is this was a pretty remote area and forensic anthropologists are even less common than forensic pathologists. So it's not like every office has one person sitting around. It's on a case by case basis. Either they'll ship the bones there or the person will be brought in to the office to do their exam there, depending you know, on the situation and accessibility. And so they will look at the bones. So they're not tissue experts, they are bone experts, if that makes sense. So we're sort of complementary. Um, and the medical examiner is still responsible for the whole case. So they would give like the analysis as a part of the case. Doug, the bounty hunter, was interviewed on a YouTube show called Popcorned Planet, where he not only expressed skepticism with the skeletal remains belonging to Brian, but also stated that Brian's dentist was his uncle. Uh, they get a partial dental match, and so I, you know, called my dentist. What does that mean? He means that means that there's teeth. I go partial. It's like a partial fingerprint. It's not a full one. They can't say that. And lo and behold, allegedly, the uncle to Brian is the dentist. We have not heard this information from anyone else and cannot verify whether it is valid or not. But one thing is clear. There are endless conspiracy theories out there related to this case. And the number of bizarre turns this case has taken, not only the crime itself but throughout the investigation, doesn't help quiet these conspiracies. People want a resolution, and that's why there's conspiracy theories. But you just have to remember there's families for both of them. You know, it's not easy for anybody, obviously, to lose a, a child to murder or otherwise. In the midst of working on this episode, on Tuesday, November 23rd, the news broke that Brian's final autopsy results had determined his cause of death something we weren't sure we would ever learn. A forensic anthropologist determined the manner of death to be suicide. The Laundry family lawyer, Stephen Bertolino, announced they had now received a more detailed report after the remains were sent to a forensic anthropologist and released a statement that said this. Chris and Roberta Laundry have been informed the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head and the manner of death was suicide. Chris and Roberta are still mourning the loss of their son and are hopeful that these findings bring closure to both families. Previously, Bertolino said that Brian's parents had discussed several times the possibility their son had died by suicide. 
While Brian was missing, Gabby's family members said in many interviews that they hoped finding Brian would shed light on what happened to her. But with Brian committing suicide, it remains unclear whether those answers will ever come, unless Brian's parents share what they know or any conversations they may have had with their son after he returned home without Gabby. I imagine this outcome most likely doesn't bring closure to Gabby's family. Brian took the cowardly way out, not giving any information to Gabby's family, leaving them with unanswered questions forever, leaving them to wonder how and why their daughter's life was taken at such a young age, at the hands of the person she planned to spend the rest of her life with. The District 12 Medical Examiner's Office in Sarasota, Florida, confirmed the statement in a press release that read, The District 12 Medical Examiner's Office has completed our investigation into the death of Brian C. Laundrie. The investigation included the following. Scene response by medical examiner personnel. Complete examination of the recovered skeletal remains. Consultation with a forensic odontologist, including dental comparison for identification. Consultation with a forensic anthropologist, including skeletal reconstruction. Confirmation of the identity of the remains by both dental comparison and DNA analysis. The cause of death has been determined to be a gunshot wound of the head. The manner of death has been determined to be suicide. Complete signed reports will be on file at the District 12 Medical Examiner's Office. In accordance with Florida statutes and at the request of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, these reports and other information pertaining to the medical examiner investigation of Mr. Laundrie's death may not be made public or released until the law enforcement investigation is complete. There are a couple of things that stood out in the press release. First, Brian's identity has now been confirmed through DNA, and not only through dental records. And secondly, the FBI investigation is still ongoing. Following this news, Richard Stafford, the Petito family lawyer, also put out a statement that read, the Schmidt and Petito family has been aware of the circumstances surrounding the suicide of the sole suspect in Gabby's murder. Gabby's family will not be making a statement at this time due to the request of the United States Attorney's Office and the Teton County Prosecutor's Office. The family was asked to not make any comments and let the FBI continue their investigation. The family was also asked to wait for the United States Attorney's Office to make a determination on whether any additional individuals will be charged. When that determination is made, we will have a statement. Many had wondered if Brian had a gun, and while researching Kylan and Crystal's case, we had even heard rumblings online that a gun was missing from the laundry home. It has now been confirmed that this was, in fact, the case. Brian Enton tweeted this. When Brian Laundrie was reported missing, his parents turned over all their firearms, but one was missing. That is according to Laundrie family attorney Stephen Bertolino. Bertolino said, while law enforcement was at the Laundrie home on September 17th to complete the missing person report for Brian, 
We volunteered to surrender all guns in the home to avoid any possible issue going forward. While retrieving and taking inventory of the guns, it was realized one pistol was missing. Many people following the case have taken to Twitter to raise their concerns and share their opinions. Twitter user at UnframeTheClaim tweeted this, It's very likely they recovered the gun, but were withholding details until the autopsy was complete. They knew the gun was missing from the house, and I don't think they would have released the scene, reopened the reserve, unless it was recovered. I'm sure more details will come out. The FBI continues their search for clues in belongings found near Brian's body, including a notebook that had water damage. Officials haven't yet said whether they have gained any information from it. The notebook could be key in providing answers. And in addition to the notebook, Brian will have left a digital footprint behind that investigators will dissect to determine his actions and whereabouts after Gabby's death and prior to his suicide. Brian's texts, Emails, social media, and any internet browsing history will paint a picture for law enforcement and help them determine what he was thinking or doing. They will also be able to determine whether Brian was impersonating Gabby if and when he sent text messages to her family members from her phone prior to his death. Those cell phone records will reveal his movements between Wyoming and Florida when he drove back to his parents' house without Gabby. Twitter user at Sheen Slater had this to say, referring to Brian's parents. As soon as he left while upset and grieving, if they were unable to stop him, they should have immediately contacted law enforcement for help to intervene. I mean, if my child was suicidal and leaving the house with a gun and I couldn't stop him, I would definitely contact law enforcement. Northport Police Chief Todd Garrison said, We are thankful that another step in finalizing this case has been taken. While this entire situation evokes nothing but sadness, we're hopeful that all the work which went into the chaotic search for answers will help heal those impacted. People wanted closure. They wanted vindication for Gabby Petito's death. And as a mother to a young girl, this just, like, terrifies me. You know, she's still young and innocent, but... She's going to grow up and interact with other people. And you just don't know, right? They seemed like a happy young couple, you know, doing their cool adventures in the world. Like, you never think it's going to end like this. I'm sure her parents wouldn't have said, okay, yeah, go along with your fiancé if they thought she was at risk, right? I think the domestic violence part of it, we should all learn from because that's often under-recognized, if definitely and not recognized by people. You know, I think what you see on the, you know, one aspect of it is not the true reality. And I think this case really highlights that because when you look at their Instagram or, you know, social media, just they're beautiful, young, healthy people. Right. And the fact that both of their lives ended so tragically just seems heartbreaking, you know, that it ended this way and you would never, you know, who would think that, right. That's what I think comes out of this, you know, it's just 
again, what can we learn from the deceased to help the living? That's always what I think is my motto. And in this case, I think it's just awareness because these were young kids from well-to-do families, raised well, healthy, doing their, in their early 20s, adventures, right? Like, and you just never know what's going to happen. So hopefully someone will seek help or, you know, that kind of thing. Girls will speak up before it goes to this horrible ending. Now two families are without their kids. So that's the hard part. And I think that's maybe lost in some of the thoughts. I mean, I know he's the most likely suspect, even though he was never named. We're not okay, but we have this, we have each other and we're gonna help a lot of people and that's what's keeping us going. What do you miss the most about your daughter? It's her smile, her love of life, her laugh. Just her free spirit. I envied that in her. We always talk about how we wish we could take a road trip. We should have done that when we were younger. But that's why I encouraged it. I believed that she could do it. <laughs>